Welcome to Voice of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Global Conservation Corps is a nonprofit organization with a mission of bridging the gap between communities and wildlife. We believe that in order to have a world with wildlife and healthy ecosystems, we must facilitate a mutually beneficial relationship between wildlife and the people who live alongside it. We are driven by the belief that if leaders of today and tomorrow know and appreciate the value of nature, wildlife stands a chance to grow and flourish. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we are talking with Ellen Miles, founder of Nature is a Human Right, an organization based in London, England, with a mission of making access to green space a recognized human right. Our conversation today will take us in a lot of different directions, not all of which have been covered in previous episodes of Voices of Nature. For example, we'll gain a better appreciation that nature is around all of us, no matter where we live, that there is a critically important connection between mental health and nature, and finally, the steps that all of us can take to be more effective engaging with policymakers at all levels of government to advocate for nature. Ellen, welcome to Voices of Nature. We are so excited to have you on today's episode. Excited to be here. Thank you. So, Ellen, uh, just to start, can you give us a little bit of your background and talk to us a bit about what inspired you to launch Nature is a Human Right? Um, Yeah, of course. So I often get asked about my backstory to becoming an activist and to founding Nature is a Human Right and Dream Green, which is my other enterprise Uh, But the truth is, the story is quite a short one. Uh, It all really began when I quit my office job at the end of 2019. I'd, of course, cared about environmental issues for long before that, but I definitely wasn't living a radical life of an activist beyond joining the odd march. And I ended up quitting my job because this voice in the back of my head, this drive to do something meaningful with my short time on this planet, eventually drowned out the fear I had that was keeping me in that comfortable fun and well-paid but ultimately unfulfilling career so I jumped ship so you know I didn't start uh, I didn't decide age seven that my life's work would be to make cities greener I wasn't born with a birthmark of an oak leaf (laughs) on me Um, and I could draw my story back to childhood and tell you about my years spent between London and the Essex countryside and how that may have planted the seed of the idea that grew into um, this thought that nature should be a human right but that wouldn't quite be true Um, But I think that's incredibly empowering. Um, My brief backstory is interesting in the sense that it's not especially remarkable. And I think that's important to say because I think people get put off by the idea of starting something or becoming an activist because there's a sense that you had to have emerged from the womb where waving a a banner, um, which wasn't the case for me. Um, But a lot's happened in the last year. And the reason that kind of inspired me to launch nature as a human right um is a lot to do with lockdown and everything that happened in 2020 um because we were seeing that not only were people being more affected by coronavirus as a result of comorbidities fueled by a lifetime of nature deprivation but also people staying at home for people was not an equally uh manageable thing to do we were all being told to stay at home and it's quite easy to say that when you have a nice outside space to return to but home isn't safe for everyone and then when they started closing the parks which was happening in London in the poorer 
areas and the areas whose residents were more um, likely to be communities of colour. It was clear that nature wasn't being treated as a right um, and that it was a privilege for a few people. And that really upset me because a lot of people were getting through lockdown by gardening, by going to parks, by, you know, accessing green space. And we were seeing a resurgence in love for nature. Um, you know, Google searches for different birds and plants shot up 10 times. There was a unmanageable demand for seeds coming into gardening centres, but not everyone got to have that experience. And I think that tied into all the calls that began to build last year, finally around racial justice, um, which happened after the campaign was launched, but I think just emphasised this growing hunger for greater equality uh, in a number of ways. And um, yeah, I think it was a lot of the events of last year just kind of folded into this melting pot and lockdown was kind of the the one that fired it off. Yeah. I mean, what so interested me in in having you on this podcast was your perspective of nature, right? I mean, there's been so many people that we've had on this podcast that are, you know, rangers in, you know, remote places in South Africa, scientists in in the field in Brazil and India, journalists in Zimbabwe, but yet all of us actually have nature really, really close to us, be it a community park, even be it a backyard, something that we've talked about in other episodes, even planting uh, a plant and keeping it in, in your house is is a way to not only help nature but bring nature closer to you and so i just i think your perspective on nature is is so important and just like can you just explain to us in more of these urban settings what what does nature actually look like through your eyes well, how do you see nature well i think nature in an urban setting is interesting you know i think we tend to see urban and nature as polar opposites Um, So we don't realise or appreciate that nature can and should be an abundant part of the urban experience and that there's many opportunities to connect to nature in these environments, although I argue that there should be many more. So, of course, there's the green spaces, the parks that we can go to, um, although not everyone has equal access to these spaces and they're not always of a kind of equal quality. There are people can grow in their back gardens and what I am advocating for more and more is people growing publicly in the streets guerrilla gardening, as it's called. Um, So people transforming these lifeless grey patches of land into little pockets of greenery and connecting to nature through that experience as well, I think is incredibly empowering and helps to give you a sense of belonging over a space, um, which can often be taken away from us in these uh, quite... in urban environments where community isn't necessarily put at the forefront um, of our city design. And so nature i mean nature literally grows up through the cracks of cities streets um and cities aren't designed to prioritize nature you know they're designed to prioritize cars and commerce but we can start to look for nature and start to appreciate it more um and start to cultivate it ourselves in sometimes cheeky ways so despite nature as you said growing up through the cracks of streets (laughs) and being around us you also have argued that millions of people around the world are nature deprived. Mm -hmm. Make that connection for us. Help us understand what being nature deprived means. So um, having nature, like in particular, by nature, I mean green space um, around us is essential to our health and our happiness as human beings. Um, Our species evolved over millennia in harmony with the rest of 
you know the living world we think of nature as other but we're part of nature so we're evolving in a kind of symbiotic relationship with the rest of these living beings um generation after generation um their survival literally hinged on their ability to interact with these world surroundings and despite the fact that we may have in some ways gained independence from nature um all these technological advancements which have only happened in the last 0.01% of our genetic history as a species haven't been able to change our genetic code you know it can't evolve that fast we're still hardwired to need immersion in greenery as human beings to function and to feel as we should but our natural habitat today looks very different to the ones we evolved in um over half the world's population already live in urban environments um and in the US and the UK it's more than four in five of us um and these environments are far more gray than green um so did you know for instance that concrete is now the second most used substance on earth after water and it already outweighs every tree bush and shrub on the planet and concrete is an incredibly resource intense material that just the making of it alone from ecosystems and habitats around the world yeah it's it's intense and it's you know we when you picture planet earth you know we always picture this blue and green blob um but actually it's looking grayer by the day and the consequence of this because most of the world now lives in urban environments is that millions hundreds of millions of people don't have access to daily access to greenery so in the uk it's 2.7 million people who don't live within accessible walking distance of any green space in the us it's 100 million um and worldwide it's in the hundreds of millions um and this state of being nature deprived has terrible consequences for our mental and physical health um because we have evolved to need nature and you know scientists have compared the effects of time in nature to the benefits that we get from exercising, sleeping well, eating your five a day. There's crazy things like the fact that hospital patients actually recover faster if they can even just see tree foliage from their beds. So nature is really key to our well-being and it's something that we are being deprived of. And and that's another just tragedy of covid, right? I mean you you alluded to it before where in the face of the pandemic, especially in the early stages when I think all of us at some levels were struggling with mental health. Parks, green spaces, and other places where you could actually see and touch nature were being closed down. And that only compounded all the challenges that we as individuals were facing in the in the face of this, you know, time, frankly, and still is this frightening pandemic. Do you feel that the tide has turned, at least in the last few months, that you know, as we've started to to emerge from COVID, the you know the vaccines are are on their way. That are, is nature kind of opening back up again in terms of the ability of humans to access it. Or what you saw being closed in you know a year ago at this time has it stayed closed? Have we been further shut out from nature? The closure of parks has only been one issue. I think um, the main issue is the fact that cities. Are being built in this biophobic manner where we're not considering nature enough because we'd ha- we haven't maybe until quite recently realized the significance of nature for our health and happiness as human beings. So it's not just that the parks closed because they did quite quickly open them up again because there was a big um you know outcry against that happening. And if anything I think maybe all of those park closures and coronavirus um has helped people to appreciate nature more. And I'm actually kind of hopeful um, for what we'll see as a result of that, because 
um, in the UK, at least, people were talking about and appreciating and using parks more than ever. You know, park usage shot up 67% higher than it's ever been, um, partly because there was nothing else to do. But I think also people started to recognise the innate mental health benefits that it had on us. So I think, yes, COVID lifting, I think people being able to go outside more is a great thing. I do slightly worry that when we're allowed to do anything, whether people will start using green spaces as much. Um, and I do think the overall issue is that we need to create more green space, um, you know, in the spaces between these flagship parks that already exist to help reach people in more outlying communities that are currently being underserviced um, and neglected in terms of the greenery that they can access. Is there a, a, almost a corollary of this where, yes, nature, nature is a human right, but should we also look at nature having its own rights namely when we as humans go and experience nature when we when we walk in a park that we owe it to ourselves we owe it to our community we owe it to those who are in the park as well more importantly we owe it to the nature in the park to take care of it in the early stages of covid here in the us there is this terrible terrible problem people would go in particular to the big national parks they would leave trash everywhere mm. and and these parks were even further degraded than what they already were. And, and, and to me, it's it's like, yes, of course, nature is a human right. But we also we also have to recognize that nature has some rights as well that we have to recognize and nurture and support. Totally. And that's why I kind of want to talk about it in terms of this kind of symbiotic relationship. And when I say nature is a human right, um, I worry sometimes that people will interpret that as, you know, it's our right to do whatever, whatever we like with it. It's our right to exploit it. You know, it's ours. And that's absolutely not what this is about. And I completely agree to the rights of nature. And I think if anything, this campaign is a way to help further the kind of protections of nature, but just from a, from a perspective that I think more skeptical people and slightly harder hearted people can get on board with. Because when you say to someone who doesn't care about the environment and for, about nature in its own sake, you know, here are all the things it does for you. Here's why we should, here's why it's a right that you can have and, you know, protecting nature will be good for you in this way and that way. You can get many more people on board with the idea that we should be protecting and increasing nature. Um, so I completely agree with respecting nature. Um, and that's the only way that this is really going to work, because if we're not respecting nature, then it's not going to help us back. You know, if we're trashing it, we're not going to get the benefits from it. And um I think from that perspective, like they have to work together. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit about this later in the episode, but in terms of you know how we can engage with policymakers to to protect nature, but just in the very very immediate and even individual sense, when 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 we're in nature, mm -hmm. what are some things that we as lovers of nature, we as visitors into nature, can do to, as you said, not trash it, to protect it, promote it, and ensure that it's at best maintained, if not ideally, it's brought to a, a higher higher state of health? I mean, it, it really depends on your location. Um, I think what, and the season, what nature needs, I think the, the first thing we can do is to listen and to observe um, and not just swoop in and just try and kind of insert stuff in um, or make, for any kind of singular person walking into a forest, I wouldn't advise that you suddenly start um, trying to like, prune things or make any great changes um, <laughs> obviously don't like start fires and don't rubbish anywhere, but um I think it's just a, just a case of respectfully learning I think you know how many 
trees can you name in the area that you live in how many birds can you name what what is your understanding of that ecosystem and then you can start to think about how you can enhance it um you know what wildflowers could you plant to to help pollinators what um different bushes could you plant for birds to nest in what's needed where you are and what does what's nature kind of asking for rather than having this kind of ivory tower solution that's not really meeting the needs of the area yeah and something that's becoming a an increasing focus of mine is you know, if you see litter when you're in nature, yeah. I know it's always hard, but try to try to pick it up because if you don't pick it up, it could very well wind up in even a more sensitive part of the ecosystem. And I think that's been such an issue with um, coronavirus as well because people are hesitant to touch things. Yeah, I gotta be honest. If I see one more disposable mask on a hiking trail, I'm I'm not sure how well I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy. Um, how many people are still using those disposable masks? I saw even at the at Biden's inauguration, people who had come <laughs> were like up on television wearing them, you know, really, um, I found that completely bizarre. But hopefully that'll be another good thing about hopefully this whole pandemic coming to a close will that there'll be less um, single use. Yes, which has been a, a, another terrible consequence mm. of this pandemic, the use of, the excessive use of single use plastics. Yeah. And maybe that, that takes us to a bit of a, a the broader issue, which is you've talked about getting nature to be recognized as human right requires a system-wide approach. And, and so all the, there's a lot of things that tie into getting nature recognized as human rights from, from policy to what we were just talking mm-hmm. about, you know, getting our arms around the, the use of single-use plastics, cleaning up, protecting, restoring. Talk to us about what a system-wide approach to getting nature recognized as a human right means. Um, well, I think so. A system-wide approach is necessary because the systems change required to make access to nature a human right has to happen on a number of levels and on a number of different like horizontals and verticals. So obviously there's, you know, from the kind of top-down dictate from the UN stating that access to green space is now enshrined, you know, in international legislation as a human right. That's one thing. But what does that mean in practice? How does that translate into the everyday principles that we're seeing? So we'll need to have policies on proximity of green space to individuals um, that make sure there's kind of equitable access to green space and and also volume and quality of that green space. It'll mean ensuring that we're kind of examining our structures of like racial injustice, for instance, which at the minute means that there's far more nature deprivation in communities of colour in both the US and the UK and across Europe. it's going to involve everything from housing developers to local authorities to government policies. Uh, and it's not going to be an overnight fix. Um, there's so many things feeding into the way things are at the minute and how urbanization has been allowed to proceed and, you know, why parks aren't being prioritized at the moment. Um, that's going to require shifts from so many different angles and also a kind of a revision of the way that we create buildings you know the way that we design buildings will hopefully you know it'd be great to see more living walls and green rooftops and things like that and just planning more for the future and considering these more humane humanitarian and environmental factors above kind of the immediate gratification of a cheap quick fix do you see these kind of system-wide changes that you're envisioning scaling at a rate quickly enough to address the fact that, you know, there's over, we're we're roughly 800 million people in the world today living in extreme poverty, meaning they live on less than a, in US dollars, a a dollar and 90 cents a day. Mm. 
all of whom have a right, and you know, I'm using that word intentionally, to a better life, mm-hmm. to greater creature comforts, access to so many of the consumer goods that we take for granted in our lives that just make our lives easier. And yet achieving that is will put an enormous strain on, on nature. So will that systems change scale quickly enough that we can hopefully allow these hundreds of millions of people a higher quality of life, knowing that that, again, places a massive demand on nature? This is an incredibly important topic to me. And my answer is that it's it's not these millions of impoverished people who are to blame for the pressures being put on or potentially being put on the Earth's resources. We don't have to deny anyone the building materials, clothing, food, and so on, that they need to live a dignified and fulfilling in life. Instead, we need to start limiting the vaster exploitation of nature that is being done by the tiny minority of human beings. Um, so just 1% of people create half of global flight emissions. 100 companies produce 71% of climate emissions. You know, it's it's not these people who are who are being denied the kind of basic essentials of living, um, even if we grind all of those people what they need, that wouldn't be the issue, I think. These millions of people aren't living in poverty because nature doesn't have enough to provide them. They're living in poverty because our world is ruled by a system that sees value in things, including people and nature, only insofar as they can be exploited for exponential growth and gain and will continue to do so. So I think the question isn't how can we justify exploiting nature versus helping impoverished people. The question is, how can we redress the huge injustices in the way that resources are divided to ensure that overall there is far less exploitation of nature, while at the same time providing enough food, clothing and housing for everyone? Yeah, I mean, that that gets me to what I see, and I've written about this, is the greatest tragedy of humanity right now, which is we assign greater value to our present selves than we do to our future self. Mm. And that if we cared more about be it tomorrow or be it the health and well-being of future generations, we wouldn't live this way. We wouldn't have this rampant consumption at all costs because that rapid consumption of all costs is unsustainable. And and not only are we suffering in the immediate, but in the future, we're going to suffer even more. It's an exponential growth pattern of suffering because we don't value the future. We just value this moment. There's those, all those studies on the fact that that is, you know, the definition of kind of childlike thinking is on there, you know, the, this immediate gratification versus, you know, greater fulfillment in the long term. And I think it's the same with nature access, because for every, they've done studies in the UK, and for every one pound you invest in programs that connect people to nature, you see a seven pound, so like a seven times return on investment in terms of reduced strain on the National Health Service, in terms of um, reduced crime rates even. There's so much that goes into it, and yet people can't, we're not seeing that what seems like a no-brainer just to invest in this stuff because people are seeing it as a kind of immediate loss to their gains in some way. Have you ever heard of the concept of Earth Overshoot Day? Yes, yeah. So that was, in my book, that was literally sentence one, page one, chapter one, where I talked about Earth Overshoot Day. Yeah, it gets earlier every year, doesn't it? Well, it it does, except in cases of global economic recession. So in 1970, we were we were living in balance, right? We were the rate at which we were consuming Earth's natural resources was was at the rate where the planet could regenerate those natural resources. In 2019, 
the Earth overshoot day was, I believe, July 28th, which means that from July 29 to December 31, we were consuming the future supply of nature, be it water, timber, acreage, what have you. And that's essentially spending your annual income and then living on your savings for the last four or five months of the year. In 2020, Earth Overshoot Day moved back to August. Why? Because of the massive shut, the economic shutdown that occurred during COVID. And so that's, that's like the cruelest of all ironies. The only time in which we slow our consumption is when, frankly, humanity is suffering even more than usual. Yeah, well, that's why we started to see all those things last year, like the, you know, Earth is healing, you know, humans and the virus. And that kind of eco-fascism is, is kind of tied to, the, you know, the overpopulation myth and like what we were just talking about. You know, it's not these millions of impoverished people who are to blame for Earth Overshoot Day. It's the smaller minority of people who are really over-consuming, you know, the, the wealthier. So how can, in, in the face of all these problems, how, how can people like me, or listeners of this podcast take action to try and slow down Earth Overshoot Day, to recognize that nature is a human right, to recognize that, frankly, there's only a small handful of people truly responsible for much of the mass consumption. You think of it in those terms, it all feels overwhelming. Yeah, it does. You just want to throw up your arms and you just want to say, you know, I, <laughs> not my problem. Someone else can deal with this. A, how do you respond to that? But B, again, how, how, do, you, how do you get people to, to take action to help address some of these massive challenges? Yeah, I think, I think the fact that when you look at, you know, um, the small proportion of companies and individuals causing most of the damage, it does, it does feel easy to feel powerless, but it's not. And your individual actions still can make a difference. And, you know, you can vote with your wallet, as they say, by not choosing to not buy anything. Um, that's exploiting the planet. So I, for instance, shut down my Amazon account last year and haven't touched it since, um, which sounds hard, but it's doable. No, but it feels it feels kind of good. Like I've bought in the past year, I've literally bought no clothing. Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. And and it feels it feels really good. I mean, because it's startling to know that a single t-shirt to make a single t-shirt costs what seven hundred and fifty gallons of water. Yeah. And you, then you start, you go in the store and you look at a t-shirt and you're like, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. No. And I think, I think one of the ways we can shift this mindset from anxiety and fear, because when you think about climate change, the, the emotions around it tend to be negative, you know, whether it's anger at these exploitative industries or whether it's anxiety and fear for the future, it's really negative. And I think that nature connection can help to drive a more positive like climate action movement because it's been shown that when people connect to nature and have more contact with nature they become more eco-active they act in more sustainable ways whether that's choosing to cycle rather than drive or recycling more or not buying things they don't need um contact with nature makes us love nature and have that appreciation for nature and so by getting out and having contact with nature and by making access to nature a human right for all we would then be you know raising a generation of people who are more likely to love and care for the planet and so stimulate this movement not based from fear um, or guilt but rather based from love and coming from a place of respect and so I think one thing that you can do and also being in nature just reduces your stress anyway so I would say get out in nature it'll make you feel better and it'll make you just act more eco-consciously subconsciously <laughs> um, yeah that's right yeah 
um and go and plant something maybe don't go and disrupt you know an ecosystem with with invasive species but look at what's native to your local area um find a gray patch of dirt in the street and plant something in it it's not strictly legal but like it's not bad you're not going to get in trouble for it um, no one's going to notice if you happen to drop a few seeds as you're walking by a patch of gray um, yeah just take up hobbies that are kind of creating things in fun ways you can garden in your own back garden if you have the privilege of having one but why not do it in the street where everyone can benefit from it yeah that's a great that's a great suggestion but now to take it up a level you are in in your organization are engaging policymakers, right i mean it's which goes from the individual to much more of the collective sense tell us tell us a little bit about that work and tell us about how again someone like me people listening to the podcast could kind of follow in your in your footsteps doing that. Yeah, so in order to to have this work, to have access to nature as an idea work in practice, we need to have a kind of tangible you know, measurable policy set around it. So like what is how much volume, proximity, quality of green space we're calling for per person? How's that going to work, you know, in terms of you can't just create a park in the middle of a densely populated urban area. So like, how are we going to increase street tree canopy? How are we going to find ways to create pocket parks and parklets along those areas? Um, and to ensure that more of housing estates are taken up by, you know, biodiverse green space as opposed to kind of paved over space. So working to develop policies that are practical, viable and affordable, and also offer like a return on investment through these, you know, reduced um need for doctors and mental health services and the reduction in crime you see when you have this and you can do this by writing a letter to your local representative calling for greater provision of green spaces in underfunded areas or just where you live you can do it by you know looking at the policies that are currently in place and seeing what they are and in what ways they serve you and in what ways they could be improved and you know you can also support <laughs> The Nature is a Human Right campaign. If you have expertise in policymaking or um, whatever it might be in your area, please do get involved. And Alan, how how would they find out about your your campaign? Tell us tell us a little bit about your campaign and, and where they could plug into that. So um, the campaign, as um, you've mentioned, is London based. Um, we've got a website which is Nature is a Human Rights dot Earth. Um, I'm looking this year to formally incorporate as a charity and get some great trustees on board. So if you know how to run successful petition campaigns, I need you. If you're a dab hand at fundraising, I need you. If you've got inroads to the United Nations Human Rights Council, I need you. Um, but you can find out the, the majority of the things you need to know about the campaign on the website. Um, and you can also um, reach out. Um, on hello at nature is a human right dot earth or to me personally at Ellen at nature is a human right dot earth. It's actually a mouthful. I uh, should have thought about that sooner anyway. Too late. You got your URL now. No turning back. <laughs> um, people, at least it's not confusing. And yes, hopefully there's lots of exciting things going to be happening this year on that. And, um, you know, engaging with some UK policymakers to um, create more of a campaign around um, what we could apply here. But obviously, the, the ambition for this is absolutely international. Um, and as I'm not, uh, you know, au fait with the um, American processes as much as I should be, um, anyone that can help join the fight, please do. Yeah, and, and I, I would say, on here in the US and 
you know, now that we're, we're emerging from the, the four years of the Trump administration and, you know, while, while you could argue that some of the, you know, that some of these decisions that Trump made, like pulling the U S out of the Paris climate agreement, weakening any number of air, water, health safeguards, there was, there was actually an amazing amount of progress made at the, mm-hmm. at the local level by mayors of all political persuasions, even of governors of all political persuasions, in large part because they know that their communities are very sensitive to a lot of the issues that they raise. A lot of people in their communities did just what you are advocating doing, you know, getting involved, making their voices heard. And so I would just say that that kind of activism at the local level, and it doesn't need to be, you know, standing out, protesting every day, but rather, you know, writing yeah. letters, making making policymakers aware of things that need to be done actually plays a role. And and you can be heard. You can make your voice heard that way. Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, if there's enough voices calling for something, you know, change will happen. And we saw that last year with the Black Lives Matter protests. You know, there have been changes and there were tangible things have happened, you know, that filtered down into organisations, you know, companies that I've worked with have kind of finally come out and released diversity and inclusion um, charters and things like that. So there is hope for change um, and your voice does matter. So channel that hope, channel that voice looking forward 20 years. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that humans in nature will find themselves living in balance and that nature is actually recognized as a human right? I think the trend towards urbanization seems to be unstoppable. So in 30 years, the UN predicts that three in five of us will be living in cities. But urbanization doesn't have to mean grayification. So my vision for the future um, is for cities to be more green than gray and for everyone living in them to be able to receive those mental, physical and social benefits that come with an abundance of accessible green space. Um, So, yes, it will be those biophilic buildings and um, green infrastructure everywhere. And I do think that it's not only possible, but possibly necessary, um, because if we are hurtling towards the sixth mass extinction and climate catastrophe um, and cities are engulfing a larger and larger proportion of our planet every day, and we need to make sure that those places are uh, hubs for nature protection, too. You know, nature just can't be something happening somewhere else. That's uh, a nice way to look at it. And I guess it, it ties into the, the last question, which is, I, you know, I ask this question of everyone, and it's my effort to end these, these interviews on a, on a hopeful note. So, you know, despite all the ravages of COVID that we talked about earlier, the, you know, the vast, enduring socioeconomic disparities that we see every day, the degradation of some of our ecosystems, there's still a lot of reason for hope. What makes you hopeful? I mean, what what gets you out of bed in the morning and to say, I'm going to, like, I'm going back at it again today. I'm going to tackle these challenges. I'm going to make nature human right. Why do you do that? I think because of people, you know, I, I, I really, I believe and I see that people have an incredible power to do amazing things. And I think from an urban greening and an environmental justice perspective, I feel like 2020's boom in people's awareness of the value of green spaces and the need for greater equality and the power of community action 
have created this huge wave of possibility and the potential to transform um, neighborhoods into greener, healthier, happier, and more equal places. Um, and I see that it is possible and that it can happen. And I've seen this happening in small ways myself with urban greening initiatives I've been involved in and have led. Um, and I see there's a huge fascination and a hunger for this to happen when I talk to people about it. And I'm excited, not hopeful, but excited to see it happen because I know it will. And there you have it. Ellen, thank you so much for being on Voice of Nature. Your, uh, your work is so incredibly impressive. It's just so important. I can't understate the importance of it enough. People can visit the website, the Voices of Nature podcast website, to learn more about the work of Ellen, learn how they can be engaged, and how they can take so many of the, the lessons that Ellen has shared in, in this podcast and apply it to their, their lives and their communities. So, Ellen, thank you so much for being part of the conversation today. Thank you. Take care, Ellen. Bye,